Sisters, hear the good news. From one man, sin entered into all the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. Sin is contagious, and it went throughout all the earth with the violence of death. It tears apart relationships, injures loved ones, speaks lies, and encourages the mob to find a scapegoat for their own guilt. Sin betrayed Jesus and brought the hostile crowd to shout and jeer for his death. Sin led men to deliver a guilty verdict, though no sin was found in him. But through the obedience of Jesus, sin was dealt with. Jesus conquered sin and death. Now through him, righteousness will reign over life, uh, reign in life over sin. Though the world is filled with sin, grace is reigning through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord forever. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and sends forth justified followers into all the world to spread the good news and to make disciples of all nations. Sin and death no longer reigns. Jesus does, and you with him. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They therefore said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. We'll turn now to chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples of the sea at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, 
I'm going fishing, they said to him. We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, No. And he said to them, Cast a net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for his work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out, of the, got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you now have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We'll turn now to Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. If you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without any understanding, which must stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Holy God, it's good and wonderful to be invited to the Father's house. We have had our feet washed now at the front door, and we enter to hear the message of God So we pray that you would speak to us, teach us, mold us, shape us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And then seat us at your table and feed us on the king's food. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read a verse that's quite familiar to everyone, if I can find it. It's in Timothy. You know it well. Here's what it says. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, child training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible is one book with 66 chapters. It's all inspired by the Spirit, and as we say, every tense of every verb, every plural, every singular, every sentence, every paragraph is all God's doing. He had it written down by men who were moved along by him and truly in their particular chapters, their personality may come forth, but it is one book with one author. Sometimes we forget that. It has a beginning and it has an end. And the beginning and the end are inclusios. They're bookends. Where you start, you end up. Man is brought back to his glory by the time you get to the end of the book. Brought back at great cost to the Savior. 
When you read through the book, you are picking up ideas, thoughts, symbols, metaphors, all the way through. And none of them can be left behind. I don't know if you like to read literature, but if you read something like War and Peace by Tolstoy, you, if, you, if you just look at each chapter individually, you missed the whole story. When you go to seminary, you're taught how to interpret the Bible, the rules for studying the Bible, how to study the Bible. And at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks was the famous uh, person who taught that, and he taught what many people taught. In fact, we watched a uh, film series here by him years ago now, and uh, you know the three words. I can still hear him saying it in class. Observation, interpretation, application. And of course, the emphasis is on observation. Most of us are too hasty to devote time to observation. But it's in the observation that you pick up all the clues that are coming through the Bible in the storyline, and you're bringing forward everything that was in the past as you're progressing through the Bible. We don't know how to read that way today very well, and we don't know how to listen that way today very well. In fact, we're less inclined towards the literature of God, and we want some uh, simple propositions. Like one set man said to me, what am I supposed to do? Just tell me what to do. That's what I want. Don't give me the rest. Tell me what to do. Well, of course, there's a place to start. But one has to grow up and put childish things behind and become adult in their thinking. And it takes effort, and it takes time. Some people are more skilled at it than other people. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to help us grow in this endeavor. And the more one grows in the endeavor, the more glorious they discover the Word of God. And the more glorious they discover the Word of God, the more they love it, the more time they want to spend in it. And the more time they spend in it, the more they find their lives enriched because the Word of God is truth and it sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It changes us. The more time that is given the more one changes. The less time that one is give, given to the word, the less change takes place. That's why there are different growth of rate, and it is the work of the Spirit, no doubt, but some of us are more adept at this kind of reading. Others are still in the process of learning. Nevertheless, no one can exactly excuse themselves and say, well, that's really not for me. Because the author to the Hebrews chides the readership, and he says to them, by now, this time, you ought to be teachers, but you still have need of milk and not solid food. You're not accustomed to the word of righteousness that is like a gymnasium that exercises you. So I challenge you to give attention. Now, one more thing, and all of this 
is building up to where we're going today. The other thing you learn in seminary is rules for interpretation. Well, I suppose there are some rules, but I want to suggest that you start afresh and throw out all the rules. Let me give you an example. When it comes to parables, I'm sure most of you have heard this, that each parable has one point and not everything in it is to be interpreted. It just is there to help make the point. And I say to that, where did that rule come from? That is a bunch of hogwash. Every word is inspired and is important. Now, it may be true, and it is true. God is infinite, so his word is infinite. And consequently, we're not going to grasp it in one read or two reads or 25 reads or in a million reads. There's always going to be more that jumps out, but one has to be looking for the jumping words and putting the ideas together and, and impressed with this God who has as one of his attributes the attribute of language. If he didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to speak. It comes from him. So I urge us to grow in this regard. Now, we come to the third manifestation of Jesus in John chapter 1, 21, excuse me. John chapter 21, and uh, we did the same thing last year, I believe, as we looked at the end of John, and we realized there are two, three appearances of Christ, and each of them is a little different. The first two are quite similar in that the uh, disciples are gathered inside a room with doors that are shut, and Jesus comes in. And then uh, a week later, on the first day of the week, the eighth day after Jesus' resurrection, uh, he does the same thing again, but this time Thomas is present, and we looked at that last week. The third manifestation comes in chapter 21, and it is quite different. And just as an observation, look at chapter 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Then just jump down to verse 14. We have the nice little bookends of this paragraph. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there's no more glorious doctrine than the resurrection of Jesus, of course, but did you see something in verse 1 and verse 14 and count them up? Three times the word manifested is used. It means to make something visible. Well, now, why are there three times? Well, you have to use your, uh, your literary brain and you have to, you have to uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? You, you have to think imaginatively. Test it out and see what you think. Is this just happenstance? Of course it's not happenstance, because it's God-breathed. And God doesn't waste his breath. When he speaks, he intends for something to happen. And Isaiah chapter 55 tells us, whatever he sends forth, it accomplishes the purposes 
for which he sent it forth. So here there are three words to manifestation, to make something visible, something that's in the dark and now has come to the light. And of course, one thing you could say right away, well, this is the third manifestation, so three words. But it also reminds you of the third day. Third day, third month, third year. You start looking at numbers in the Bible and you discover they mean something. 40 days, 40 years, it means something. And you have to read and ask and think. Well, here, I'm not quite sure, but I'm guessing that here it is to remind us. Jesus was raised on the third day. Third days are new beginnings. It's the new beginning in chapter 20 because it's the first day of the week. And the first day of the week, Jesus has come forth from the dead, and so it's a, a new creation. Now, in John chapter 21, we come to what people call an epilogue, because the point of the book is reached in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. These have been written that you might believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's the point of the book. So all of these signs are recorded so that those who read, those who hear, because remember, they didn't, they didn't read. Back when this was written, hardly anybody read. So you went to church and you got the word of God read to you. Well, we've been blessed to have it written. And of course, that's God's intention. But there's also a problem with that, if you haven't noticed. And that is, uh, you know, take a congregation. Let's just say you've got a congregation of a thousand people and they all take their Bibles home and they read it. And let's just say for fun, they're reading the th same thing. And what do you end up with? Well, you end up with about a thousand different interpretations. Why? Because we've forgotten that church is sacred. It is when we meet with God and God speaks to us and he is telling us what to think. We think like Americans. The Bible interpretation is almost democratic. Not so. So here we have this passage that Hyde has read to us and you know the story quite well. And uh, you can say, well, now, what in the world is this supposed to mean? So let me just uh, briefly walk you through just some ideas of John. So I'm going to give you some ideas to tell you that John is written to Jewish people to show the Jewish people that the Jewish system is going to collapse and come under judgment. It's done not overtly, it's done in a literary fashion, or it's done by things that Jesus does and you interpret them to realize. But first of all, let me just say right off the bat, when you think about John and you think about light and dark, you probably think about evil and good, Satan and God. But dark and light in John, although that's really quite true, has a greater nuance than that. So that the darkness, we don't have time to pursue this, it's just going to be helpful for what we're going to say in this passage here. Well, darkness in the Gospel of John, maybe not in every use of it, but in a number of uses of it, has to do with the darkness of Judaism. Nikki 
Demas came to Jesus by night. People say, well, he was trying to cover up that he was coming. No, that's not the point. The point is he came inside the darkness of Judaism. He couldn't see right. It was dark. And Judaism has to fall because now there's new dawning light and you've got to come out of Judaism and you have to come into the light. That's the point. So when you look through the book of John, you discover that there are certain signs and uh, then a, a, a lot of discourse and uh, some other events, and they're all moving in one direction. So in John chapter 2, for example, everybody in this room I'm sure is familiar, is the cleansing of the temple. So this is done at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Synoptic Gospels. The cleansing of the temple is done at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Passion Week. And what's emphasized in John is different than what's emphasized in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, what's emphasized is that Jesus took a cord and he drove out the oxen and the lambs, and he told the people at the doves to get them out of there, and he overturned the seats of those who were changing money, and he knocked the money over, and he says, you've made my father's house a place of merchandise. When you come to John chapter 14, which we will be doing next week, I thought I could get it all into one week, and then early this morning, I decided, ooh, I have to go two weeks. When we get to John 14, we'll see the second use. In my father's house are many mansions. You've turned my father's house into a house of merchandise. Now, wait a minute. Stop. When you go back to the Old Testament, if you're reading through and you come to the Gospel of John, you're reading straight through, you already know this because you've picked it up and it's in the back of your mind and you don't let go of it. You hang on to it in John chapter 14. Well, now, if you live far enough away from the Father's house, from the temple, you could uh, take what you're supposed to take and offer to him. You could sell it and then take the money and go up to the temple, and at the temple, you had to take your money and change it into temple coinage. You didn't get to use just regular coins, you had to change it into temple coins, and then with temple coins, you could buy uh, an ox or a lamb or uh, you know, other stuff, beer or wine, or whatever your heart desires, it says, and celebrate before God. Now, wait a minute. That means at the house of the father's house at the temple, there were animals for sale. At the father's house, there were tables where people were there to change your money into temple coinage. And that Jesus says, you're making my father's house a house of merchandise. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is he's shutting down the house. I'm sure they were profiting. And they were not godly people, so it was probably a large prophet, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is he's by symbol saying this system is going to die. So he's challenged by the people of the temple. What sign do you give us since you're doing this stuff? And he said, tear down this house 
this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. So he's standing in the temple. He's saying, you tear it down, I'll raise it up in three days. And they say, what do you mean? This house has been 46 years in the making. It's not even finished yet and you're going to build it up in three days? So Jesus is telling us something, something that you and I already know because we've read through the Bible several times and we know the epistles and we recognize that we move from a structure of stone and wood and overlaid gold on the walls and carvings on the walls to a people temple. And the people temple begins with the temple of the body of Christ. And so in the new covenant, we have no sanctuary of the sort in the old covenant. Now we have a new sort of sanctuary. And here we are. We are the sanctuary. We are the people temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. And according to Peter, this is where acceptable sacrifices are made to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We track all that through. Okay, that's number one in the Gospel of John. So you have this old covenant, and we're moving into the new covenant. So the first thing Jesus is telling us, this temple has to go. This ministry has to go, because in the new covenant, there's not going to be animal sacrifices. There's not going to be that kind of temple. No, it's going to be a different kind of temple. Well, now, there are lots of things to say, but I just want to pick up on, on a few of them because they're the easiest ones to see. When you get to John chapter 5, and Hyde taught us about this sometime back, in Hyde chapter 5, Hyde, Hyde chapter 5, whoa. In John chapter 5, there's a bunch of people who are lame or maimed in some manner, or blind. And an angel comes to stir the water. And the first one in is healed. And there's a lame man, and he's been lame for 38 years, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. So you put that together with the time the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and that makes 40 years. He was lame for 38 years. He's been laying by this pool trying to get in. Well, probably not all the 38 years. He was a little kid, but he's laying there trying to get in. He's in the wilderness. Along comes Jesus, and Jesus tells him to take up his pallet and walk, and he takes it up. That's showing us something about Israel. Put it in the past. Jesus is going to be the new person in town now. This was set up under the Mosaic system. And under Moses, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Fast forward to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. And when they're all done with the feeding, there are 12 basketfuls left over. And by the time you're at the end of the story, there's this whole huge crowd that says of Jesus' words, these words are too hard. And they leave him. What's left? The 12 disciples. They're the leftovers the 12 disciples. So you have this picture of, it's a picture of Passover. And then at the end of Passover, you cross over the Jordan into the promised land. So we're putting 
this old history of Israel behind. Now Jesus comes. And what Moses did is he wrote the book of Deuteronomy right, uh, uh, you know, basically on the shores of the Jordan. And he is making a new covenant with Israel. And he's going to give them a new leader because he's going to be left behind. And he's going to, the people are going to pass over Jordan into the promised land. In the book of John, that's what Jesus is doing. In the book of John, Jesus comes and he meets with his people and he has his own. He came unto his own and those didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. But... The real ones that are given to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we'll see it next week, are the 12. Those are the ones that are given to him. So he's got 12 men. And when you get to chapter 13 through 17, you have this upper room discourse. They're in the upper room. Ask yourself why it's an upper room. It's important. It's a point. They're in the upper room. And Jesus begins to talk to them, and then they go out of the upper room, and they begin to walk down the street, and they finally end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what Jesus is doing them for is for the same thing that Moses did. He's preparing them for his departure. Moses was leaving, and so Moses makes, covenant, makes a new covenant with the people that has lots of rules and all in it, and it's also a prophecy and he puts Joshua in charge. Now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go away. But I'll send a Joshua. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he will take you through. So you see these hints of Israel's history and that it's being put behind. Something new has come. We're leaving the darkness of the old covenant and we're moving into the sunlight of the new covenant, the new, the new uh, Moses into Christ. So Jesus dies and he's raised the third day and he appears to his disciples minus Thomas in a closed-in room. And then he appears to Thomas with his disciples in a closed-in room. And then in John chapter 21, he appears to, well, to seven disciples, if you count them up. There's Peter and Thomas, who's called Didymus. There's the two sons of Zebedee and two others, and Nathaniel. Seven. Does that make any difference? You might say, well, that's, that's just the way it happened. Yeah. But you see, God is sovereign. He organizes all of history. And so it does make a difference, and he did organize it that way. That's the way it was done. So why seven? Well, let's just hang on to that thought, and let's think some more through chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they all say, yeah, let's go fishing. So they all hop in a boat, and they're out on the uh, Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and they fish all night, and they catch absolutely nothing. And Jesus is standing on the shore, but they don't know it's Jesus on the shore. And he says, hey, hey, you don't have any fish, do you? No, we don't have any fish. Throw your net down on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get a catch. And they throw their net down on the right-hand side of the boat, and they get a huge catch. 
153 fish. Does it make a difference? The answer is yes. God did not choose for him to catch 152 or 154, but 153, and it has a meaning, and I don't know what it is. There have been some proposals, but we're not going to spend time on that right now. You ponder it. Maybe you'll be the one to write the book that finally gives the solution. But it's meaningful because every word is inspired, and God is sovereign, so everything that takes place takes place under his sovereign guidance. That's the way it happens. And uh, the one who's loved, the disciple that, God, that Jesus loved, we'll just call him John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And you are, uh, some of you, are reading a numeric standard. And the numeric standard says that uh, Peter put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work. And of course, that's not what the text says. It's just, you know, you don't want people thinking about the wrong thing while you're preaching, so you don't want to put he was naked. Otherwise, you might start thinking about naked men in a boat. But that's what it says. He was naked. And he jumped into the sea to swim to Jesus. And the other disciples, they're towing in this net with their little boat with 153 great fish, and the net's not broken. And they notice when they get to the shore that Jesus is there, and he has a charcoal fire. And they notice that What's laid on the fire is fish and bread. But he says, you know, bring some of the fish that you've caught. And so Peter goes out and drags in the net, and they bring some fish, and then they sit down to eat. Now, is it just, you know, because this is the way it was that we're told that Peter was naked and then put on an outer garment? You're starting way back here, and you're reading through the Bible. By the time you get here, you have some ideas. You're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. In that first sanctuary, that Eden sanctuary, where God came in the Spirit on the seventh day to meet with Adam and Eve, two people were hiding in the garden because they were naked. First, they hid from each other because they made the first holy underwear, fruit of a loom, out of fig leaves. And then they hid among the trees to hide from the Lord. And the Lord called out, Yahweh said, where are you? Well, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Now, if you're thinking about that, and you realize this kind of scene comes up all through the Bible, and you're thinking about that, what do you think? Well, Jesus told Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And once you've turned, strengthen your brothers. 
Well, Peter was sifted, and Peter did fail. He was at the high priest's courtyard, and in that courtyard there was another charcoal fire, John chapter 18, and he was warming himself on that charcoal fire, and he was being asked by the people of the high priest, didn't I see you with Jesus? Says the relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off. No. A little slave girl aren't you one of his? I am not. Three times he says, I am not. Well, he has sinned and he's naked. And he's going to see the Lord. You know, most of us aren't very good at talking about all our sin. Fortunately, or graciously, I should say, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and not only to cleanse us from the sin we've confessed, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what you have here is you have a contrast in scenes. Over here, you have a charcoal fire, and on it is laid bread and fish, and Jesus is doing the cooking. And over here is another charcoal fire, and from this charcoal fire, you can look up into the high priest's room, and you can see Jesus on trial, and John is in there with Jesus, but Peter's at the fire warming his hands, and denying Christ. You have two contrasts. Now, you have to think, as I said, you have to think imaginatively. So, first of all, when we're, when we're at this fire, Jesus is there. That means something, of course. Jesus is high priest. When we're at this fire, well, the high priest is there. Only this is the high priest that is not going to be high priest anymore. What do you have? You have a new creation, and you have a disintegrating creation. You have a fire and the high priest there, and seven men gathered around. Why seven? Because a new creation has come to be, and it's a seven-man creation, a seven-day creation. And over here, we've got a bunch of people standing around a fire that's going to be crushed, and the place is going to be desolated. So what I'm trying to say is, okay, this is a picture of new creation. You go to the Father's house, say, at the tabernacle or the temple, or in heaven right now, Jesus says, you know, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and uh, you and I are going to go there. We're going to die, and we're going to end up there with Jesus in a dwelling place. You, you go to the Father's house to meet with the Father. The Father's house, from all we know, I mean, what we see on earth are all replicas of what's up in heaven. The Father's house 
what we see on earth is what? If you take the tabernacle and you take the temple and you just look at its structure, you have an altar where fire is, it's a charcoal fire. You put wood in and you burn it and you burn up sacrifices. And then these structures are made to look, as we all know in this room, are made to look like they're rising. It's on a horizontal level, but you move from bronze to silver to gold. The picture is you're going up, kind of like, uh, like the statue in, in Daniel chapter 2. You're going up, you're ascending. And of course, you go from this, this altar that's on earth that's called the Holy Mountain. It's like Mount Sinai. You can walk up this mountain and it, 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 the, these altars get bigger and bigger. But anyway, you can walk up. It's like walking up on the mountain. And it has four uh, horns on it to picture mountain peaks. And you're going up into the heavens. And you move into the first room. And in there are the lampstands. So you've, you've come into the heavens, this seven-piece lampstand signifying the sun and the moon and the planets you can see. And then you go behind the veil that covers that, this big blue veil, and you go into the next room up, and you're not in the heavens where the sun and the moon and the stars are. You're in God's heavens. It is a picture of God's creation. So when we take Judaism, and we take the temple, and we smash it, it's desolated, what are we saying? We're saying that creation is over. Now, if you don't agree with me, you need to grow in the reading of your Bible. Just simple like that. You just have to learn to understand. This is a storyline. These images are all being brought forward. You can't leave any behind so that you get a picture. And then here we are standing around a simple charcoal fire. And here's Jesus. And here's Peter, who's covered up his nakedness, even though he's a sinner. And you realize, ah, oh, this is the manifestation. This is the manifestation. This is the manifestation. It's the third day resurrection and new creation. That's the picture. Now, the second paragraph is about stripping Peter's clothes off. So three times Peter said, I am not. No, I don't know him. I don't know the man. I am not one of his disciples. I am not one of his disciples. And three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, why? Why? He's been exposed. I am not. I am not. I am not. And now Jesus has pulled it out of him. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. 
you know I love you. Now, of course, there's the exchange of the two words that can have different meanings in these interchanges. Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. And then in the end, Jesus says, do you phileo me? Yes, I phileo, you know everything. And we could make a difference out of those, and maybe it should be, but within the Gospel of John, there's something we discover. Because we're reading closely, we discover those turn out to be synonyms in the Gospel of John. Elsewhere, they may not be synonyms, but in the Gospel of John, they are synonyms. So we're going to set that little argument aside. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. And just notice in verse 18, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were uh, younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will lead you and bring you where you do not want to go. Someone else will gird you. So just notice, we're picking up this idea. Here, Peter puts on a cloak because he's naked. Jesus pulls it off. And down the road, he's going to be girded for what? He's going to be a sacrifice. He's going to give up his life for Christ. Now, one more thought, and then we're going to pick this up next week. I hope you see we're moving all the way from the Garden of Eden. We're moving all the way down to the Jewish temple and all of its problems. And Jesus is by figure saying, this place is going to be crushed. It's going to be no more. It's going to come to a stop. And then here we are at the end and we wonder, why in the world is this here? Well, here it is. It's an epilogue. An epilogue is two words in Greek. Epi, which means upon, based on and logos, which means word. A word based on everything that's been said in John. It's an addendum. It's an afterword. It's an epilogue. The argument's been reached by the end of 20. These signs have been written that you might believe that, that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus, and believing you might have life in his name. But Peter's been using all of these signs, and now he's saying, okay, this is the summation of the signs. The darkness of Judaism is coming to an end and the light of the new covenant is dawning. There's going to be a new temple. And in this new temple, there are not going to be priests like the old Levitical priest system. In this new temple, there's going to be all the people who make up the temple. And then there's going to be some people like Peter. Ah, oh. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked permission to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He didn't pray that for Judas. And when you repent, when you turn around, strengthen your brothers. Peter, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, Peter, now it's time. Feed my sheep tend my lambs so here's this 
new creation. It's just a picture of an altar, a charcoal fire. The building structure's not going to return, but the altar's going to return. And there's going to be burning on the altar. And the burning on the altar turns out at Pentecost when tongues of fire come on the new altar, which is made up of men like Peter, in fact, Peter. And with this new burning on the altar, there's going to be a witness for Christ. Now, we don't live back in the day of Pentecost, A.D. 30, and we were not sitting in that upper room where tongues of fire came upon us. But let me leave you with this thought, and some of you will say, well, you know, Craig, you're nuttier to fruitcake. But I'm not. I'm thinking imaginatively. I'm picking up all the chords as we run through literature all the way through the Bible because that's what we're supposed to do. When the writer to the Hebrews says, we have an altar from which to eat, that they have no right to eat those who serve the old covenant. What is the altar? It's a table. And on the table are set two elements, bread and wine. Now, with your third of an ounce of wine, it's not going to do much. And if it's grape juice, it's going to do even less. But what does wine do? It sets you on fire. And when we drink that wine, we are renewing covenant, and we're saying the same thing Jesus said not my will, but yours be done. If it's not possible for this cup to pass from me, I will die. When we drink that cup, we're saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I will die for you. Stand with me. Father, we want to thank you for our Savior. It's impossible for us to understand the anguish that he underwent, both in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his sweat became like drops of blood. He was such intense anguish to think that he would bear the sin of the whole world and be separated from you. And on the cross he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But we know in the course of Christian history, from the resurrection to this day, there have been many men and women like Peter who were girded and taken somewhere they did not want to go, but they did it because you've set them on fire. And we pray that your spirit would set us on fire to serve and love and adore our Savior. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.